What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the chatter. I'll tell you what, the stock right now of the Chatter Podcast is going through the roof. I, I know we're only getting one of these shows out per week, but when you have back-to-back -back guests of Lorenzo Neal, one of the greatest fullbacks of all time, and follow him up with Randy Wynn, who hit in front of Barry Bonds and Ichiro Suzuki, that is a one-two punch on the Chatter Podcast. Let's start off with the Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati and the Hoodays are in some trouble. No doubt about it. Get this. This is the game day info for tomorrow night, Houdini. Ex-NBA star and Baltimore native Carmelo Anthony is the legend of the game. Orioles center fielder Cedric Mullins is the honorary captain. An outcast big boy will perform at halftime. And the Ravens are wearing all black uniforms. I mean, that is something you have to take into account when you look at this spread. Your overall thoughts on the Cincinnati Bengals and the Baltimore Ravens on Thursday night football. My opinion, the best day of the week to play football. Oh, I agree. As far as the the best day of the week to play, Thursday night, man. Because Sundays, it, 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 it ruins your week if you get after it too much. Thursday, you're going right into the weekend, especially with the holiday coming up. Nothing better. Um as far as big boy from outcast and Carmelo Anthony being there, that frightens me a little bit. I don't know what the line did when that news came out, but it better have adjusted by about a point or a point and a half. Um, this is a, this is a huge game. This is the difference between, you know, six and four or five and five. It, it tests what we can do, right? As far as the season goes on, we don't have much room for error if we lose this game. And if we lose another divisional game, what the hell are we doing? We got to beat a team in the AFC North at least one freaking time, um, and, and then we can go from there. But the Ravens are one of the scarier teams in football. I know they just lost to our boy Deshaun Watson, RIP. I know he's out for the year now. But I'm a little bit nervous. I, I don't feel as confident as I did you know, going into Houston, even though we lost. Um, but I still think we can definitely win this football game. Three and a half points is the spread right now. What are your thoughts? Is that something you're going to lay down the three and a half? Take uh, Bengals plus three and a half or what? I think I think Captain Hook will save me. Uh, three and a half, I'll take that. If it was two and a half, um, absolutely not. But that extra half point with the field goal, come on now. It's Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. Ravens are seven and three. Bengals are five and four. I know Joe Burrow said like five weeks ago at this point before the Arizona Cardinals game that it was a must win. This is 1,000% a must-win if you want to win the division. You lose this game if you're Cincinnati, and the Ravens improve to 8-3, and three, the Bengals fall to 5-5, five and five, and the Bengals are 0-3 in the division. It's over. It's as simple as that. You're playing for a wild card at that point. Uh, Trey Hendrickson was a full participant in practice after missing Monday. That is the good news. The bad news, T. Higgins, Sam Hubbard, and Yoshi are out. That is terrifying. I want to go back to the Texans game, though, because we never got to talk about it due to some time constraints and not being able to have a show on Sunday. That was, I know we we're on the wrong side of it, but that was one of the most wild football games I have ever seen. I was on the way home from the airport, actually in Cincinnati, driving to my parents' place, and um, Dan Horde almost mushed it. He essentially said after that interception in the back of the end zone that Burrow threw, he's like, Texans have the ball with three minutes to go. It's a 10-point game, and that will do it. And Cincinnati is the Bengals' faithful heads to the exits. 
And then two minutes later, it was tied up. That was crazy. Just give me your thoughts on that one. It was a it was a roller coaster of a game. I mean, you start out just marching right down the field. We got Joe Burrow doing the bullseye archer celebration uh, to Trent Irwin. And you're thinking, hey, we're, we're just picking up where we left off. We're going to cruise through this one. Um, and then all of a sudden, we we looked like we were, you know, against the Tennessee Titans again. We couldn't get a first down in like eight drives. And I'm sitting there going, look, look at, even without T. Higgins in the lineup, how the hell is this team not getting 10 yards on three attempts, at least once in the last seven possessions? I thought the game was over, too, after that pick. And then, of course, the second I saw Boyd get caught on that long run, I'm like, that's going to that's gonna fuck us in the end, big time. And it did. And Boyd obviously had that huge drop that, you know, potentially could have sealed the game. I mean, the Texans were moving the ball pretty easily. So you never really know. They could have scored a touchdown there. I, I do have a bone to pick with Dan Horde, though, friend of the program, because I was listening to half the game in the car on the way home from, uh, you know, my Gary, Indiana vacation. He seems to get a little too excited when there's a touchdown on the other side. Like if I just heard the um, inflection of his voice, I would think that was a Bengals touchdown. He's like, it's CJ Stroud bullseye in the touchdown for Noah Brown. I'm like, dude, you're a local guy. Get pissed off about the win. Like Lapham's in the background, like breaking tables and shit. Um, but that's the one thing. I, the, the game overall sucked because we lost, but it was about to be one of the best comebacks. I was about to drive home and go directly to the banks because I thought it was going to be an absolute, you know, wildfire down there. But unfortunately, it didn't pan out for us. But now we got an opportunity Thursday. You're right about Dan Horde, man. I thought the same thing. There was a play where the Texans, where he said, interception, Hugh. Oh, they dropped it. And I was like, it's supposed to be the other way around. You're supposed to say, oh, it's interception. Oh, he dropped it. Like, it was just, it was, right. it was a little strange. Uh, Dan Horde, friend of the program, one of the best broadcasters in America, no doubt about it. Um, he just brings it. He brings it. He calls the action. He has no he's bias. A pro. I know he's the local guy. But he just brings it for both teams and brings the energy. I prefer the guy personally that goes out there and just absolutely can't stand the other team. And when there's, you know, a walk off field goal, he just says snap down and the kick is up and it's good. Bengals lose 30, 27. We'll see you for the postgame show brought to you by Gold Star Chili. Like that's the type of broadcaster I want, but you can't always get that Houdini. No, no, you can't. And yeah, Dan Horde's a legend. I love, I love me sitting on my ass going, Dan needs to figure it out when he's calling these games. I need more passion, just strictly being a homer for the Cincinnati Bengals. But the, the one thing with the game, we got to, I know our running game hasn't been great, but we can't just abandon the run altogether. Mixon wasn't playing too bad. I mean, he was averaging like four and a half a pop and he had like 10 rushes. Like we need to run the ball a little bit more. So we're not so one dimensional. Um, so I hope we run the ball a little bit more. I know it's easy to get away from it when you got uh, Joey B just throwing darts across the field, but seven possessions. Somebody will get our Teffer can our unpaid intern. Can you check fact check that? It felt like it was seven possessions in a row with no first downs. Can't happen. Yeah, and now's a good time to remind everyone that Mel Teffer, our producer, is having his mock 2027 NFL draft on April 4th of 2024. So you want to get that on your calendars. Uh, Mel Teffer, of course, our insider, he will be hosting that show. I, I want to change gears, though. Tim's Farm Corner. 
We we talked about it on the original show, and I haven't heard the updates on Tim in a while, but I think I know why Tim moved to a farm, dude, because my father-in-law is obsessed with riding the tractor, or I guess the lawnmower, the sit-down lawnmower, you know? I, I think what it is is you just get to 60, and you want to saddle your ass up and ride that tractor, you know? Maybe if you're a little... A little crazy, you turn on some music in there, you have a little Corona light in the back seat, whatever it may be, but you're cruising around in that thing. You know, you're 60, boozing, over it. Movies, seen them all. Just give me the green grass, a ray of sunshine, and 20 minutes on my big lawnmower. Is Tim a lawnmower guy? What's he doing at the farm right now? We got to get him on the show soon. Maybe we go Lorenzo Neal, Randy Wynn, Tim Clowkey. Tim Clout, Tim the farmer. Yeah, back to back to back guests. There's nothing better than that. Uh, Tim, as far as the as far as the lawnmower question, that's actually a pretty, pretty interesting topic here because I first went out there, right? And he's got a you know a number of acres, right? This asshole he's only got a push mower. So clearly that's not really gonna work, buddy. So he got a a secondhand John Deere tractor. And I'm sitting there and he's telling me to cut the grass. So I'm like, all right, fine. Like I've always, I always begged him with a yard that was literally maybe like 25 yards long when I was younger that we need a, a riding mower, which was completely ridiculous. And he never bought uh, one for it. But <laughs> so I go out there, I'm starting to cut this grass and I'm noticing like I'm going over it. It's not that big of an area that I started out with. And half the grass is like cut. It's a little bit longer than the other part. It's like a wave going through the whole thing. I come to find out the reason he got this, because he's a cheap ass, he bought a secondhand mower that was just, the blades were just completely fucked up. So one of them is completely, it's like eight inches off the ground compared to the other one. So the whole place looks like a fucking wave pool as far as the grass is concerned. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, no big deal. And I'm like, maybe it's time he wants to be the lawnmower guy or the yard guy. He's just not it. You know, the, the diehard yard guys, they would never let that happen. They're striping their lawn, making it look perfect like an MLB uh, outfield. And that is not the case at Tim's farm. This sounds like he's having an identity crisis, man, a self-identity crisis. He, he's not a farmer, but he wants to live on the farm. He can't shoot the yep. raccoons. Um, he, he wants to be the lawnmower guy. He just doesn't have it in him. Too big a cheap ass. He's OTR. That's what he is. He's a, he's a West side Cincinnati type guy. You know, get your ass back to Delhi, Tim. What are you doing at the farm? He's not a <laughs> farmer. Um, so this is exactly how I, uh, I pictured our first Tim's farm corner segment going. We got to get him on to defend himself though. That's at this point, well, that's the only thing left for Tim to do because I agree. He's got to pack up his bags tomorrow. This is a bigger thing, and it's going to happen to us as well as we get a little bit older. It seems like everybody transitions, and they they every adult male, as they get into their 30s, later 30s, 40s, they get into one hobby, and they're just obsessed with it. It's typically either going to be craft beer. They get really into the IPAs, the craft beer bullshit. Second one is lawn stuff. You know, they're, they're constantly, you know, checking their yard, mulching it, going to Lowe's. They're, they spend, you know, half their days at Home Depot. What's the third one that they typically – hunting is a big one. You can get it – or hiking. Hunting, hiking, kind of the same shit. 
same category, hunting, hiking, fishing. I'd say the gym is one. There's always those guys yes. that get a little bit older and they hit the gym up every single day and they're, you know, shirts, the, the string shirts that make their backs look jacked and they walk around for an hour and a half with their duffel bags. You know, those are marathons, a, a group of people marathon out there. Marathon guy. Marathon that's a big guy. one. Actually, that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk about because I recently ran a 5K. And humble brag, ran it in sub 21 minutes, which put me in the top five of all people over the age of 30 in the San Francisco Bay Area. So top five, Chuck Walter, no training, runner. It's incredible stuff. Anyways, I run this thing with Bill Stanger, friend of the program. You know Bill Stanger very well. Big time runner who goes out there and runs these. I don't even know what you call him, but he basically runs these 80 Ks where he's running for like 16 hours straight up hills and stuff. And by the end of it, he just falls down and they stick IVs into him. I don't understand it, but people do it. And Bill Stanger is one of those guys. So he had no issue running the 5K with me. In fact, he was my pace car to where I just kept up with him. I had no idea how fast I was running. I was just exhausted. And he would point out people and this made running really fun. He'd point out people and he's like, let's go get that bitch. That guy doesn't hold a candle to you. And you run past him. He's like, really control your, your breath here, run past him, focus on your breathing and just dart right by him because it mentally people can't handle it. When you run past him and you hear them <sighs> and you just cruise past them, you're exhausted, but you're not giving away the fact that you're exhausted. They crumble. As soon as they see your backside, they crumble and you just point out targets and pass them. But I just think the whole art of running is hysterical because the 5k, if you've ever been to a horse race, it's like the paddock. The starting line is like a paddock, you know, at a horse race where people stand around and they kind of point out the horses and they're like, all right, that one doesn't look like it has it. They're checking out the mannerisms, everything. You show up to the starting line at a 5k, you see those guys in the short shorts and the matching cross country uniforms. You're like, all right. That guy's got to kick my ass. He should be running the marathon. I don't know what he's doing. You see the people in like the Buzz Lightyear outfits and you think to yourself, oh, these guys are running in Buzz Lightyear outfits. They probably were boozing the night before. They're just here for charity. They suck. Those are going to be easy targets. The 5K first off, you can do that piss drunk, hungover, doesn't matter. It's freaking, what is it, three miles? Is that what that equates to? Yep, 3.2. Come, Come on, that's chump change, okay? I'm not claiming I'm a big runner, but... There's something going on with just the culture of the 5K, the half marathon, or the full marathon. If you put, if I see a, a bumper sticker that says 13.1, which is the half marathon, you're an asshole. Okay. Do you put, do you have a, a, a sticker on your bumper that says you did, you went to two years of college, you just got halfway through and called it a day? No, they give you a diploma when you finish the damn thing. So either run the full marathon or don't put the sticker out there. I guess uh, I was curious, though, when you're saying you're running by people, is that not similar to like if I'm on the highway and, you know, I see a guy, I'm in the right lane. He starts to he goes, oh, this guy's a huge like coward. He can't drive fast. And then he gets to the left lane and tries to pass me. I'll start just giddying up. I'll be like this. This fucker's not getting past me. So I'll start to go his speed. Is that not something that you deal with? as far as a seasoned veteran runner like yourself. It's, it's similar. One obviously is a little more 
detrimental to society potentially if you're you know flooring past someone at 120 miles per hour yeah. you asshole um when you're running it's just uh, uh it's a fun competition but i just the the observations when you show up to a 5k especially that starting line it's like the paddock and you look around and you know that those cross-country runners are, are gonna kick your ass and they always do they finish in like 16 minutes and it's like grow up buddy like come on we we get it you're you're faster than all these guys running the 5k because the only people running the 5k are the ones that haven't graduated to the 13.1 and don't even have their bumper sticker yet so yeah i, I agree 100 with you on that one these are the guys it's always the wiry skinny kids that are very fantastic across country and you got to give them their credit where it's due because these are the kids that they couldn't they couldn't play middle middle linebacker in high school right they couldn't be the power forward or the, the cleanup hitter in baseball, they had one thing they could just fucking run and run for a long time. So you got to give them the accolades, right? This is where they thrive. So let them thrive in the running environment. Did you see Drake rocking the, the sea paw? He was rocking an Eric Hicks Jersey, um, Drizzy, that Drake rocking the sea paw. Are you at all worried about the Drake curse? Because that has been said to be a thing from time to time. Drake puts on a uniform. All of a sudden, Aziz Bandego will never see the court for Cincinnati. I'm not, I did see it. I'm not worried about the Drake curse. What I'm worried about is somehow Drake, who is, you know, arguably the most famous artist on planet Earth, he still somehow looks like a huge douche wearing that jersey. He wore the, the short sleeve Under Armour underneath it. Why, Drake? Why did you make the, the most aesthetically pleasing jersey of all time? look kind of douchey even on the the coolest rapper essentially he's not really that cool he's kind of corny but he's very good at what he does i did you see that he's wearing that little under armor short sleeve underneath the jersey i think you got to take that off and redo it or maybe ai we can digitally pull the undershirt because that kind of ruined the whole vibe for me yeah i think um in the bob huggins era when bearcats are wearing that jersey I think maybe James White wore an undershirt once, but he could pull it off because he was a little bit lanky and had a 47-inch vertical, so that helps. And then I think Chad Moore wore that big undershirt. You and can, aside from that... There's a difference, though. You can do the baggy undershirt. It gives you a little swag, as the kids say. The tight Under Armour shirt that looks just ridiculous underneath a jersey. That's what he was doing. And unfortunately, Tupac or not, unfortunately, really, Tupac, when he wore the UC stuff, that's still the the, the golden of the of the gold as far as what you see in celebrity, you know, wearing that type of gear. That was fantastic. People still post that uh, meme or that gif of Tupac wearing the, the old school C-Paw, and it's the coolest thing that's ever happened to the school. Very special guest on the chatter today. It's Randy Wynn. A former 13-year Major League Baseball vet was an all-star with the Tampa Bay Rays, played for the Seattle Mariners, the San Francisco Giants, the New York Yankees, the St. Louis Cardinals. Great to have Randy went on. The reason we wanted to have you on, Randy, Monday, November 20th, in the Bay Area, you're having a celebrity draft and dine event with All Funds supporting MCF. Really cool event that starts at 4.30. The attendees draft celebrities in that same night. They go eat with them. Marshawn Lynch, Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Mullen, Dusty Baker, Eddie Murray. The list goes on and on. I got to ask you, 
if you had a big sum of money and you were at this event as an attendee out of all the athletes there, I'm putting you on the spot here, Randy, who oh, are you man. paying the biggest chunk of change to go out to a steakhouse with? <sighs> okay. So you, you, I, I know you are doing this to me, but you can't do this to me because some of these are, are friends of mine, teammates, peers. I, I can't, honestly, I just can't pick one. Uh, you know, if I had to pick somebody, you know, it would probably be back when I was a fan and not a peer. Um, so, you know, a guy like for me, Orlando Cepeda, um, just listening to his thoughts on the game and the game that he played and in the era that he played, um, just so many players that I didn't get to really see with my own two eyes. But I love hearing the stories. I love hearing about the previous eras of baseball, how the games change, how these guys think about the game today. And, um, you know, one of my favorite questions, you know, is, you know, who is the best player that, you know, you played with, who is the best player you played against and who was the toughest pitcher. So a guy like Orlando Cepeda, who was, who was an all time great hall of famer played in San Francisco and other places. I, I would love to hear his thoughts on who was the toughest pitcher he faced. Yeah. And Randy, so this, this event sounds awesome. I'm curious on where you came up with the idea to, to draft celebrities. And then when I was going through the list of celebrities, I saw Shaquille O'Neal and I'm wondering how, you know, how the hell did Shaq get in the mix? It seems like most of these guys have San Francisco ties. I just thought this event was so cool and so different. You know, the opportunity to go to dinner with you and seven of your buddies and Shaquille O'Neal or Eddie Murray or Dave Stewart, um, you know, I thought was just so cool because that's when you get that intimate. It's not really one on one, but really small group. And, and you can talk and you know, all those questions that I would love to ask Orlando Cepeda. You can ask those like Shaq, who, if anybody, right, gave you a tough time because watching the game didn't look like anybody gave him a tough time. He was just backing people down and dunking on everybody. Um, so that's where I got the idea, and it really resonated because I've been to so many events, and I thought this was something different. And I thought that not only would the athletes get something out of it because it was really a smaller group, but I thought that the people in attendance would really get something out of it. You know, doing some research, you know, I saw that you were a switch hitter. You were you're hurting the confidence of guys like me because I'm sitting there, I can't even hit a curveball with my dominant hand, and you're out there in the MLB doing switch hitting. Was that something that started when you were super young, or did you kind of realize, hey, I can I can do it both ways? I start I didn't start switch hitting until my second season of professional baseball. So I, I started incredibly late. Um, did I ever switch hit? Sure. My brother and I play in baseball in front of the house, strikeout. Uh, you know, where you're having ghost runners out there, you know, we, yeah, we, we'd switch hit and I would imitate stances. You know, we, we play this game where we'd have four guys and, you know, you take two lefties, two righties, and you try to imitate the stance. So had I ever hit left-handed? Yes. But it wasn't something that I ever did consistently in any sort of real baseball game. And I get drafted into third round by the Florida Marlins, not the Miami Marlins. I'm showing my age a little bit, but Florida Marlins, I go into short season A. And I'm just hitting right-handed, and I have a pretty good year. I, I think I'm easily within the top five in hitting, hit over 300, you know, kind of came to the end of the season with my chest out a little bit, thought I had done something, you know, really thought I showed that I could hit. And at the time, our minor league director's name was John Bowles. He comes into town, sits me down in the cage, and he says, hey, Randy, um, we want you to start switch hitting. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, but 
weren't you just watching? Like I, I, I just hit, like, not only did I hit better than anybody on my team, I was one of the best hitters in the league. Like, why, why are we talking about me? Like I, I was a little bit offended, but um, my, my father always taught me to, to ask questions. So I, I regrouped, hopefully he didn't read my face. And I said, well, well, why? Like, what, why do you think that this is a good idea for, for me to do this? And he said, well, uh, he said, not only will this prolong your career, but this will help your career and help your career move more quickly. And I was like, well, that's two really good reasons. Like if I could play for a long time and not only do that, but also move up through the minor faster. I mean, that's a win-win. So I went into that off season and really worked hard and started switch hitting and started switching in 1996. And I was in the big leagues in 1998. Uh, Dusty Baker is one of those celebrities in attendance, the former San Francisco Giants manager. You just missed him by a couple of years, but you played with the likes of Bonds and Aurelia and guys that did play for Dusty Baker. Take me through some of the stories you've heard about Dusty now that he's retired, a Hall of Fame career, has the World Series under his belt. Give me the best Dusty Baker story that Randy Wynn has that he can share on the <laughs> uh, the podcast app. Uh, I, I have so many, a lot of them I can't share, but uh, Dust, every story that you've ever heard about Dusty is absolutely true. Um, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, just after the season, wanted to congratulate him on the season, congratulate him on his career. And I just happened to be emceeing an event later, like completely unconnected. But I got off the phone with Dusty. I laughed. Um, I almost cried. And I was inspired. And he left me with a motivational message. Like when you talk to Dusty, like he takes you through the range. Like he brought me back to a story about... Um, about Hank Aaron. And then he talked about, like, we were talking about influence and impact on people. And because I was saying, Dusty, I don't think you know how many people in the game talk about you as a role model, as somebody who inspired them, somebody who guided them. There are, he's touched so many people throughout the game. It's absolutely amazing. And he's, he's so humble, but so wise. I mean, I, I love all of my interactions. That wasn't one specific, but that is kind of my, my Dusty Baker, if I could wrap him up in a small little ball, like he is, he, he's tremendous. He really is and, and a great leader. And you see that reflected in his teams, no matter where he goes, he gets the best out of his players. All of his players respect him. All his players love playing for him. Um, I, I don't think that you could say anything more than that about a manager. Those are the, the best traits of any manager. We're Cincinnati Reds fans, and they gave him the can after he took the team to the playoffs multiple years in a row. They just said, Dusty, you're gone. They hired Brian Price. It hasn't been the same since. Oh, yeah. And we got, I've got a soft spot for Dusty as well. He's just what I embody or picture as a baseball manager. He's ever in the dugout, he's got the toothpicks going. Um, so I, I miss Dusty personally. But, Randy, I got to ask you um, we've had a couple of NFL guys on, we've never had an MLB player yet. So I, I'm going to use you to help me kind of break down or put an end to this hypothetical debate I've had quite a few times with some buddies. Um, and your buddies might have thrown this at you, too, that weren't necessarily as athletic as you uh, were in your career. How many at-bats for a guy, let's say, not a good baseball player, right? Like myself, not a great baseball player. How many at-bats do you think it would take in the MLB to get a single hit? Is it a 500, which is like a season, or does that number not even exist? Would I go 0 for 20,000? Oh, gosh, that's that, that, that's a really tough question because th 
there could be some luck in there. You could do a swinging bunt and all the fielders fall down. Like See, that's I, what I was thinking. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a hurricane or an earthquake and everybody exactly. falls. Like you could go one for one. But I, I I'll take that. Think, yeah, I, I do think that hitting a baseball is probably the single most difficult thing to do in sports. Um, taking a round ball and a round bat and trying to hit it square is so difficult. Um, and then to, you know, like, like the, and a lot of the swings don't correlate. Like I, I now play golf. The golf swing does not correlate with the baseball swing. The way that you generate power and the way you sequence things, totally different. Like you'll see a golfer that can just rip a 300 yard drive, but they pick up a bat and it looks like they're swinging underwater. It's just, it's a very difficult thing. It's not only the hand eye, the hand speed, the anticipation, reading spin, where a ball starts, where the ball's going to end up. Um, you you can't you can't brute force a baseball. You have to have some sort of hand eye skill. And that's just the hitting portion, Randy. Like I'm thinking to myself, I was a decent athlete back in my day. But when you were catching pop flies off the bat, now it's easy to catch pop flies when someone's chucking them up in the air off the fungo or whatever. But in a live baseball game, when you're just tracking down in the outfield, it's incredible how athletic you guys and how disrespected baseball players get sometimes when you know people point to a, a Prince fielder or someone like that. And they say it doesn't require that much athleticism to be a Hall of Fame type baseball player. I 1000% disagree. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but I, I, I do disagree with that. I, I think even some of the, the biggest players, not all of them, but l- let's take a guy like Pablo Sandoval, who was my teammate. And by the way, looks phenomenal right now. When he first came to the league, he was, he was a bigger fella, but he was incredibly agile and light on his toes. If you're playing a corner position out, if you're, if you're playing third base and he played third and he caught the, the hand, eye, I mentioned again, but the fur, the quick first step, you, you can't really see that you look at his body type and you wouldn't think that he has that type of athletic ability. But when he was younger, he was a really, really agile, big fellow. I did want to ask since you've been to every MLB stadium, multiple, multiple times, was there any, particular fan base that you, you know, you go, Oh hell, we got to go to uh, wherever we got to go to Seattle. I don't want to play them. They lay into you a little bit. Is there any particular fan base that you had a, a little vendetta against or didn't necessarily like going to that town? I mean, I, I wouldn't say vendetta, um, but I think in general, the Northeast are usually the most fanatical fans and you're going to get the most, uh, ribbing you're going to get the most taunting you're going to get the usually the meaner side of taunts come out and i you know the the new yorks and the bostons um you know when you're talking about baseball i i kind of enjoyed it you know it brought like a little an extra energy in the air like you can definitely feel the difference between stepping into one of those stadiums or one of my personal favorites was my first year at the san francisco giants we go down to la Giants, Dodgers, obviously big rivalry. And Barry Bonds had been hurt almost all year. He comes back in September. And I remember I'm sitting on the first baseline. I'm back to the dugout and I'm just stretching, you know, stretch right, left. And then all of a sudden there's a buzz. Like you could feel it like on your, or you could feel the buzz in the, in the stadium. And he took one step out of the dugout and the whole stadium erupted in one of the loudest, <laughs> choirs of booze that I've ever heard. And I'm, it was awesome. 
because it was they did not like him. He wore the wrong color uniform. And like that type of energy, I, I really like it. I don't necessarily feed off it, but I think it's fun to play in the environments when you have kind of that buzz and that electricity. And for the most part, when you go into Boston, when you go into New York, both both sides, Yankees, Mets, there is that extra bit of juice in the crowd. Did Barry thrive off that? But just curious if Barry Bonds, because he obviously got a whole lot of hate. Did he thrive off of that type of uh, energy? I mean, it, it's hard to say that. I mean, he, he thrived off pretty much any energy. It didn't really matter. Right. right. Um, but I, I think he enjoyed making the crowd go silent. You know, everybody's boo, 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 boo. You're terrible. And then whack. And everybody goes silent. I, I think I think he really enjoyed that. I, I think thrive is a little bit too far because, you know, guys right. that are that great, like, you know, a lot of people talk about the Jordan documentary. Like, you know, I took that personal. That Everything's personal, right? It's not that it's just that atmosphere. It's a Tuesday in Kansas City with nobody there. Wait, nobody's here to watch me? I take that personal, right? So so those guys find whatever they can to motivate. I, I don't think that environment necessarily motivated Barry to be any better on a daily basis. I'm trying to think of my years, but did you play with Bonds during 73 or did you play no. when he broke the record? Were you on one of those teams? No, I, I played with him after. Um, I played I actually when he broke the all-time home run record, um, I was hitting third, he was hitting fourth. What was it like? Take me through that season. Yeah, so I actually had two little brushes with history and, and neither of them were my own. Um, so I hit behind Ichiro when he broke the single season hit record. That was very, very cool. And then I hit in front of Barry when he broke the all-time home run record. But you asked me about Barry. Um, it was it was great and it was awful. Like there was so much media around us on a daily basis, just standing around. Like, you know, he he was a bit intimidating, so nobody really wanted to go over by himself and ask him questions. So there was just a lot of people just kind of standing with cameras in our clubhouse. So you know, every day coming in, it was just a lot of people around. But once the game started, um, it, it was really exciting. You know, I was obviously trying to focus on myself and give our chance, a team a chance to win. Um, so I really tried not to focus a whole lot on the history. But like what that man was able to do, people showed up every day for one reason and for him to hit a home run. You know, Hudson, you asked me the question earlier about, you know, just trying to get a hit. Like it's hard enough to get a hit at the major leagues. Um, it, it's hard enough to kind of be able to manipulate your bat to be able to hit the ball to left, center, right. Um, but home runs are the single hardest thing to do when we're talking about. Him. And everybody wanted to see him hit a home run, and he was still somehow able to do it. Pitcher didn't want to give it up. The catchers not didn't want to call fastballs. Um, you know, he's defended a certain way. He's pitched a certain way. And still he was able to, you know, he didn't miss mistakes. Like he, even at that age. And I, and I say, and I actually Barry will be at the event. He's coming to the reception. I, I still talk to Barry. Um, this is older Barry. Like, and I'm not saying that disrespectfully. He was over 40 years old. This is not silver slugger, gold glove, early in his career. Barry Bond. This is older Barry coming off a of knee surgery and the amount of respect that he had from opposing teams was absolutely mind blowing. 
Um, nobody wanted to pitch to him. They still pitched around him. Um, and, and he still somehow, when he got a mistake, was able to hit it out. I'm a firm believer that the Baseball Hall of Fame should be, I mean, it is a museum. It's to celebrate the history of the game, good and bad. Uh, when I take my kids there someday, I want to show them guys like Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and, and some of the greatest players that ever did it, regardless of the era that they played through. You know, Now, maybe there's an alleyway where you can put an asterisk next to someone's name or just a note that says, you know, here's the allegations, here's what happened here. But I, I know it's a tough thing to answer because you are close to Barry and you played with him, but your stance on just that era as a whole is – so many people try to erase it from history, but whereas guys like me that are 30 years old, like that was the greatest era of baseball of all time. I, I love it, Randy. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it because I, I played through it. I thought it was a lot of fun, um, you know, good or bad. I, I don't have a vote for the hall of fame. So I typically stay out of whether people belong in or they don't. Um, and, and to be honest, like once I, got to the major leagues and I was there for a while and, you know, guys become your peers. It, it's not that guys are, are good or bad or whether to, to me, hall of fame really means anything or it doesn't like Griffey Jr.'s just junior, like Barry's just Barry, like um, Randy Johnson's just RJ. Like, were they great? Yes. But I, you know, in my mind, I don't need HOF by their name to really know like, and understand their greatness and how you feared them or how you battled them or, you know, like how Randy Johnson would intimidate you or, or whatever it might be. Like to me, that's, that matters less to me now as, as a former player. Um, just as far as the rule changes, I know some people from, from your era are very anti, you know, changing the game at all. And hypothetically, would you be open to once a game, you get a corked bat, one player gets a corked bat, and they bring them in, and you everyone knows it's a corked bat, but they get one shot at a corked bat. So I know I gave you a double-loaded question there, but um want to get your thoughts on that before we let you go. I am totally against the corked bat initiative. You can oh. put my name at the, the top of the anti-corked bat initiative. Fair. <laughs> um, but rule changes, if I was still playing, I would not like the rule changes. I would think – I. I would want to say, hey, stay out of my game. This is how we play. Uh, but with that said, as a person that does broadcasting and as a fan of the game, I think the game had gotten to a point where it needed a push. Um, I, I never liked legislation to dictate that push, but I think in this case it was warranted and needed. And I think the game is in a much better place today than it was three years ago. Um, I, I think if you watch a game last year, I, I don't think the changes got into the way of baseball. I think it just kind of took out all of the unnecessary time component that had kind of built its way into the game. I think games are crisper. I think games are funner to watch. Um, there's still not as much action maybe as some people would like. There's still kind of the three true outcome, the home run strikeout um, or walk, which I don't enjoy, but I think the pacing of the game is better. I think that if you take your family to the game, you can say, all right, this game's going to be two and a half hours or two, two hours and 15 minutes. We're going to get in. I'm going to get Junior a hot dog. I'm going to get my daughter's nachos. I'm going to get a hat. And boom, we're in the seventh inning and we're out of here. Like games move. And I think that the game needed that. Now, what I hope is that now that, you know, a guy like Luis Arise is, you know, 
having great success. I hope that other teams look at what he does and what some of the other guys do in the playoffs, contact, hit and run, getting runners in from third. And I think, I hope that um, promotes a bit of a change. I, I don't want the home run to leave because I think the home run, and you mentioned 1998 with McGuire and Sosa, the excitement that they have. But to me, when you look at baseball, baseball is about the players and the personalities. You know, Ozzie Smith doing flips at shortstop. Um, you know, Tony Gwynn's magic with the bat. Ichiro Suzuki's fielding and, and hitting and running. Um, you know, guys that played the game different. Kirby Puckett. Like, all these guys that played the game differently, but their their style, their what the main game makes the game great. All right, Monday, November 20th, the Celebrity Draft and Dine in San Francisco. All funds support MCF. Look up MCF, see how you can get involved. That's Randy Wynn, 13-year veteran of Major League Baseball and an all-star. Thanks for joining the chat today, man. All right, hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, do you see that Joe Burrow basically came out and he finally put to rest the question whether Joe Burrow identifies as a Buckeye or an LSU Tiger. So I thought long and hard about this um, over the last several, several hours. It's been, uh, it's been keeping me up at night. It's done a lot of damage to my normal routine and sleep schedule. I don't like it. I don't like it from Joe Burrow. I want him to take a stand because he essentially said, yeah, I, and he did. He went, he basically went to college at OSU and kind of had his grad year, two years with LSU and he was actually playing football, but I want him just to say, yeah, I'm a tiger. Listen, I get it, but have a little bit of a grudge against Ohio state because they didn't play you and you were the best goddamn football player in the country. And they sat your ass on the pine. Like what have a, I, I wish he was just a little more pissed off at Ohio state. I get it. He's never going to do it. Um, but I want him to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a tiger. I'm a tiger. That's it. That's it. Gave him his chance, man. Yeah. LSU gave him his chance. Like I, I get it. If Joe Burrow becomes a doctor or a rocket scientist or a uh, marine biologist, then the Buckeyes can claim him. But his occupation is football. And he didn't play football at Ohio State, aside from maybe a few snaps here and there and the the Scarlet and Gray game. So straight from the horse's mouth, Joe Burrow, he played school at Ohio State with Cardale Jones. Played school. But uh, it's probably Tiger. It's a smart business decision, though. Like knowing how diehard Ohio State fans are, like you don't necessarily, especially as an Ohio kid, you don't want to be on the wrong wrong side of the coin with the Buckeyes. So I, I get it. Joe, I get it. He's a businessman, um, and he's he's doing all these commercials now. He wants the faithful on his side, especially his hometown. So it is what it is, Joe. We'll accept it here on the chatter as long as you come uh, on the next show. Honestly, I was going to. Yeah, we got to get him on soon. That would that would break the Internet. Joe Burrow on the chatter. It's going to happen. You know, Captain Liam McConaughey may be first, but at some point in time, chatter is going to get some legs. The only way for it to do that is for you to give it the five star review right now. So maybe this this does reach Burrow. You know, maybe someone listening is like, hey, Joe, you got to listen to these guys. They called you trash like three weeks ago, and now they think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. But disclaimer. He was trash. I mean, we, we tell it how it is on this podcast. He was not good three weeks ago because he was hurt. We mentioned that. And now he's like the best player in football. So, yeah, Joe Burrow, how about it? Says that um, 
He is an Ohio State Buckeye and an LSU Tiger. Houdini, good stuff. Until next time, this is The Chatter.